Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week's show is a recording of our first ever live event, which went down on the 23rd of May, 2022, at Illuminated Brewworks in Chicago. It was a conversation between myself, show assistant Meredith Michael, and J.F., who joined us via Zoom from his home in Vanier. We've been plugging this event relentlessly in the intros to our most recent shows, so I'm sure this is all very familiar to most of you. But if you're just joining us, this event marked the launch of Weird Studies Black IPA, a collaboration between ourselves and Brian Buckman, the brewmaster at Illuminated Brew Works. Though calling it a collaboration might be giving JF and myself too much credit. Mostly we just told Brian about our favorite beers, and from our vague and contradictory indications, he somehow intuited the soul of the podcast and caused this rarefied substance to coalesce into sudsy matter. No average feat of alchemy, I can assure you. Much like the show itself, the beer is dark, malty, and effervescent. And if you live in the United States, you can order it online at the Beer on the Wall store. We'll put a link in the show notes. I won't say much about the conversation itself. Strap in and enjoy the ride. Maybe it was the beer, or maybe it was the presence of an audience, or maybe it was the occult ambiance of the IBW taproom, but there was a special vibe that night, and this recording conveys something of it, even though, as we discuss in what follows, recordings can never fully capture the ineffable moment. But as the spiritualist photographs of Shannon Taggart demonstrate, a recording of a paranormal event can itself become a new haunting, a spiritual entity in its own right, and maybe that's what we have here. It would be nice to think so, anyway. At the very least, J.F., Meredith, and I all had a lot of fun talking about potions and the pleasurable complications that human beings always add to the ritual consumption of them. And we hope you'll have fun listening to what we had to say. Writing this intro two weeks after the event, my overriding feeling is one of gratitude. Not just for this event and everyone who helped make it happen, but also for all the boons and blessings that Weird Studies has brought to my life. Finally meeting our listeners, some of whom had traveled from as far away as Boston, was deeply satisfying on a human level. I won't mention anyone by name, but like they always say in old-school hip-hop shout-outs, you know who you are. I am grateful to the incredibly kind folks at IBW, Brian, Jason Pritchett, Mary Alice Ledoux, Jason Monk, and Matt Shirley. I am grateful to Gabe Lubell, the brilliant composer who warmed up the crowd with his modular synth improvisations. Talk about alchemy. Unfortunately, both Gabe's pre-show set and the lively post-show Q&A are not included in this show, which, at more than an hour and a half, already makes for one of our longest episodes. But depending on what Gabe decides to do with the recording of his set, you might be hearing more in the future. I'm also grateful to Gabe for recording the show, which ended up being a much more complicated affair than you'd think and also for Pierre-Yves Martel, J.F.'s little brother and Weird Studies Kapellmeister, for mastering the audio. 
I'm grateful to Meredith for taking time out of her busy life as a Ph.D. student to record this show with us. I'm grateful to my son, Nicholas, for hanging out with his old man all weekend and for being a calming presence when I was flipping out about practical challenges that, in retrospect, were really not such a big deal. I'm grateful for all the listeners who weren't there and are perhaps getting a little fed up with hearing about how awesome it was. But if there's one thing we took away from this live event, it's that we should do another one sometime soon. So maybe we'll see you there. Okay, hope you enjoy this one. Good. I'm glad I'm, I'm seeing you and not you and everyone else. I don't know how that... Yeah, sure, I'd love to see the room for sure, just to say hello. Well, then I would have to unplug like five... No, no, forget, forget about it. Just send me a picture of your cell phone or something. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> say cheese, everybody. <laughs> Sounds good. Hello, everyone. Sorry I couldn't be here and be there, here, there, in person. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm drinking wine instead of beer. That was not my intention. Uh, we can, can you hear me, Phil? Am I coming through? Yeah, yeah I can hear okay, you. Okay, great. Okay, I just, I just so. Okay, I'm not, I'm not finished. Yeah, <laughs> when does that start? <laughs> so I was, we had a big storm on Saturday, and um, and uh, we had no power. Like half the city of Ottawa was is without power right now, and I was among the unfortunate until just a couple of hours ago. So I couldn't run out and get. Uh, I wanted to get a Guinness and some IPA and mix them together, and approximate perhaps <laughs> the weird studies beer. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to settle for red wine. Because um, that's all well, we I, had. I got to tell you that I don't think that would be a great approximation of it. It's definitely better than that. We'll have um, to send you some. So th this is going to be interesting. Yeah, I hope so. That's what all these people are here for. <laughs> <laughs> is this recording? Oh, it's recording. I'm recording, yeah. Okay. We might have to clap yeah. in in a minute. Of course. And everybody can join in to the clap. Oh, yeah. I got another crowd mic out there, so hopefully maybe it'll pick oh, up some, some heckling or whatever is happening. So. Oh, I would love some heckling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should clap. Okay. All right. I yeah. think we're going to clap. I saw that always happens. I saw the leg because I can see myself behind you. <laughs> oh wow, that's yeah, that's that's got to be weird. Yeah, yeah. It's like well, it's like when you use Zoom and you forget to turn off your self view and you're just staring at yourself for an hour as you're talking to other people. I don't know if you've experienced that. Oh, I've experienced yeah. that. Yeah, we used to do that. Remember at the beginning. We, we didn't know about, I don't know if we didn't know, we didn't think of, of doing that. So we were both 
doing episodes, staring at ourselves the entire time, week after week, until, well, at least I was, until you suggested that I turn off self-view and then I could actually see you for the first time. Was... So the, and then the quality of our recordings went down precipitously. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, that's what he looks like? <laughs> yeah. Wow. It, the lights dimmed and it feels like we're actually doing the show now rather than just kind of idling till ready, vamping right. till ready. Yeah. So why don't we start? Where do we start? Where do we start? Meredith. Me? Oh. Something to say. I do? Okay. Um, I hope so. Yeah, so I think we decided we were going to talk about potions today. It seemed fitting since it's a, a liquid and we're here to celebrate a, another liquid. Um, so <laughs> maybe, I don't know, I, maybe we can talk about what potions are. Um, yeah. And I should point out also that uh, there have been a number of bumps in the road to this. So one idea that we had was that we were going to watch the 1983 Bob and Doug McKenzie movie, Strange Brew, <laughs> since Illuminated Brew Works is like the, the Vatican of strange brews. This is the, 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 the mecca of strange brews. This is the, uh, as, I, as I said in one of our shows, uh, Brian the brewmaster of Illuminated Brew Works is the Willy Wonka of brewing. So the thing is that, however, there was a massive King Hell storm that tore through Ottawa, and JF has been without power now for several days, although now, you can see. It's back. It's back. It's back. Yeah. yeah. So, but he didn't watch Strange Brew. So uh, what no. we have all three of us done by way of preparation is not about beer, but is about tea. Oka Okakura Kakuzo, boy, blew that. Okakura Kakuzo, The Book of Tea. And this is a book that was written a little more than a century ago, I think 1907. And it's a book that is about, it's about sort of the spiritual and aesthetic dimensions of drinking tea and the ultimate refinement of tea drinking, which is the Japanese tea ceremony, uh, but also the, the, the through line, the, the, the connection between Strange Brew and the Book of Tea, thank you, um, is a concept that I have for a long time. It's something I like to call weed head shit, which doesn't actually necessarily have to do with weed, although it often does. Um, the ritualized and excessively elaborated consumption of some substance that is used for the purposes, among other things, of social cohesion. Weed, alcohol, caffeine, shit, milk. There, I, I was doing a little bit of research <laughs> for this and there's like milk, the milk culture of Switzerland. I was reading this stuff about like, the drinking cultures of Switzerland, was, and it's focused on milk. Yeah, there was a. Uh, I remember I had a friend who was involved in some situation in Ontario where this one farmer had been, you know, selling raw milk, 
like unpasteurized milk. Um, and it, it caused, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court in Canada. It was a big case. And there was this whole like clutch of people out there who were like, just, they, they, they want the raw milk. And it's like, it's more than just, you know, uh, they want the, I don't know, the antioxidant properties or whatever it is that raw milk provides. They love the raw milk for its own, for its own sake. And that's what I love about uh, weed culture and tea culture. For me, this is like, this is, this is true materialism. It's like a, the love of matter. Because it's yeah. not just the drinks. It's also the uh, paraphernalia, the, the, the accoutrements, the instruments surrounding it, the, the teacups or the beer mugs or the tankards or what's the other thing, the ones with the, the cap on them. Ritual tools. Yeah. Exactly, ritual tools. And then the substance itself, which is, of course, needs to take some material form, like liquid. I love the way you, you brought it down to liquid, Meredith, because it's like the magic of, of liquid as such, beer, tea. Yeah, drink, drinking as opposed to smoking, as opposed to other ways of consuming. So, like, there's something about drinking because, like, you know. <laughs> I'm just going to enjoy the poetry of this moment. Beautiful. It is. I love the sound of a train whistle. Yeah, me too. Me too. Oh, nice. I bet you didn't hear that, though. No. 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 Yeah. Zoom to care that. <laughs> oh, I love trains, too. But I, I think there's also something about smoking, too, that is that has something in common with drinking. And, I mean, we also didn't mention cigarettes, but I know that some, a lot of people who smoke cigarettes also have this specific ritual that they use when they smoke. Um, there, there's something about like tapping the pack to like settle the tobacco in certain ways, and people have like specific numbers of ways they, uh, times they do that. Um, flipping the pack, opening it a certain way, like a specific way that they take the first puff um, and I've actually read some arguments that the ritual of smoking is as addictive as the nicotine. And so when people want to try to stop smoking, a lot of times what the advice people give them is to come up with another ritual to do instead of doing that. And it's just struck me as that's kind of a magical practice. It's like telling people, all right, your ritual is bad for you have another ritual to like break your habit of smoking. So I do think there's something about ritual that makes things more, more important. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So this, act, this brings up maybe a, a, a good high octane weird studies type question to kick off with. What do we mean when we say ritual and to what extent can we talk about ritual, the sort of thing that undergirds religious practices around the world, uh, and that presumably is a very serious matter, uh, a matter of, of uh, you know, metaphysical import. Um, are we using ritual in the same sense when we're talking about like the ritual of smoking a cigarette or the ritual of drinking a glass of beer or what have you? What I refer to as weed head shit, the uh, pleasurable and unnecessary elaboration of the consumption of and ritualistic consumption of beverages, but also, yeah, like let's say substances generally. I'll keep it very vague. But uh, what do we mean when we say mm. ritual? 
Well, ritual, broadly speaking, I mean, you know, we tend to think, because, yeah, I'm a lifelong nicotine addict, as you will soon find out when I start <laughs> vaping. Um, but uh, I am... Um, so I know what that means. I know what that is, the whole ritual around the addiction. Of course, there's the, the basic chemical addiction of the nicotine itself, which actually like, like flips receptors in your brain permanently so that nicotine is one of the most addictive drugs for the reason that it actually rewires your brain such that your brain is forever going to need it, from what I've read anyways. Um, but aside from that, then around that, rituals form. And I think ritual, I, I'm, I'm kind of a Freudian on this, you know, the repetition thing. I, I, I'm not a Freudian, but I do, Freud, I do think Freud was onto something. This, there's something about repetition. Jung worked on that too in his early work. Like, you want to, you, you um, and I'm now sorry, I'm just, I'm thinking of Mircea Eliade and his idea of the eternal return of how, how you found a village and how it's, you need to uh, repeat certain patterns in order to reaffirm. Am I being heard or is something wrong with the sound? I no. just wanted to make it full screen. Oh, cool. Okay, and, sorry. And I'm an idiot and I didn't know how yeah. to do that, so I needed Meredith <laughs> to show me. So. Okay. So there's something about like, imposing a kind of rep repetition on the world to convince ourselves or to remind ourselves that the world is trustworthy. I think there's something about that with the ritual. So you want to uh, return always to the same point, find the axis again. And so you, and especially when you're in the throes of addiction, I think the rituals just come, just orbit around these things. They come and they coalesce around them because they, they create a kind of space of meaning around this uh, this this uh, this habit you have, but then again, you know, it's really hard to even imagine what really like the real difference would be between a habit and a ritual. You know, is a ritual just a habit that we share with others, um, a communal habit? Uh, I don't know. I have a thought about that. Um, so I was thinking about. Okay, wait, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> this happens a lot when we're recording. We usually edit it out. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. So, what what is a ritual? What's the importance of a ritual rhythm? Uh, yeah. So, I was thinking about, uh, especially with drinks. I think let's get back to that liquid aspect. The thing about drinks that makes them them. If you're thinking about things that be, could be considered art, the thing about drinks is that they're so ephemeral. You know, the sense of taste as opposed to the sense of sight, even the sense of sound, if you're thinking about music, you can always replay it. But you can't re-drink the same beer, you know? It's, it's there and it's gone. And mm. because it is important to us, and I think that it is important to us, uh, I think that we like to honor it because if you just, you know, drink things without thinking about it, it's gone and you feel like, okay, I haven't given enough, enough attention to that. So I think one thing that we can do to really make ourselves focus on that moment and make that moment more, just larger, because it's going to be short, so you need like a lot of a lot, a ten, intensity or something in that moment. And so ritual is a way of kind of drawing that out and making us focus on it and making us give enough attention that it deserves to that moment. And I think that's a lot of what, like the tea ritual that we read about in this book of tea, 
is doing is it's making people quiet themselves, forget about the outside world for just a minute, and really, because a part of the ritual involves them examining the, the elements that they use to like make the tea, um, the tea bowls, the other instruments, examining them and looking at them and saying, oh, they're so beautiful, watching the person prepare the tea, and then drinking the tea and thinking about it individually. And uh, I think that that's kind of necessary if we're, if we're trying to create, if we're trying to treat drinks as an art form to really mm. make us focus on it because you drink it and it's gone otherwise. I love that. I love that insight. The, 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 that something that is baked into drinking is transitoriness. Yeah, I like that idea. Um, and drinking is also like an exceedingly prosaic, commonplace activity. I mean, you can go for some days without eating and be basically okay, but you can't go any uh, length at all without drinking. And drinking is a fundamental, it's not just a biological necessity though, it's like one of those biological necessities that we have managed to erect a mountain of uh, ideology, social customs, the uh, um, technological appurtenances, like uh, all of the, you know, like, you know, weed head shit, all of the uh, elaborate vessels and implements and ritual tools. And I love the idea that all of, that this is, at the heart of it, is sort of like the exploding of a moment. Like you have the moment that you like tap the cigarette pack and light the cigarette in a certain way or like pour out the tea in, a, in certain ways with the tea vessels being duly appreciated by all present. The idea like it's an absolutely commonplace, absolutely ordinary, everyday, mundane activity, but is precisely by, and as you say, a, like a, an ephemeral one, and precisely by virtue of all of those things, becomes this extraordinarily humble thing that nevertheless can be kind of broken open into a kind of a, a ritual meaning. Mm. I also like what Meredith was saying about intensity and uh, not so much intensity in the common sense of the term of like, oh, that's intense, but intensity in the, in the sense of um, the concentration of an experience in one moment, the singularity of something, uh, an event, right? Um, and... Uh, it made me think of, you know, when I used to smoke cigarettes, um, the first cigarette of the day was always the best. And the first puff of the first cigarette of the day was always the first puff of any cigarette. It was always the first puff. It was the first puff. So if you could, uh, the, the magic of that first moment, it, it, there, there is a, it's not so much that you're repeating the ritual, but the ritual itself allows you to repeat a moment. So there's an aeon kind of uh, orthogonal transection of time going on where every moment where you get up and you have your first cigarette, you're reliving this. It's certainly not your first cigarette in your life. That's what I, not what I mean, because the first cigarette you ever smoke is horrible. Without, you know, no one <laughs> enjoys the first cigarette. It somehow is, though, however, the virginal puff, the virginal inhalation of something. And so there's a, an eternity in that moment that you can relive it again, again and again. Mm -hmm. And I do think that this is something that um, people who drink uh, and people who um, alcoholics uh, understand, um, the first drink. 
and it's certainly, I think, something that um, uh, tea drinkers understand. The first, uh, the first sip of puer tea, you know, when it's, uh, or the first, um, uh, the, in the tea ceremony, I can only imagine, I've never participated in one, I can only imagine after all that preparation and all that ritual to finally, you know, put the cup to your lips and actually taste the tea must be pretty magical. And it's, again, it's a question of, I, I, love, I love what you're saying, Mary. It's basically creating a space for the singularity to occur. And the singularity is always the same, but it's always the same by virtue of its singularity, by virtue of its unrepeatability. So it's kind of a repetition of the unrepeatable. That's kind of almost what these rituals are aiming at, right? Does that make any sense, or am I just no, I totally, getting lost? So, so did you want to... I don't know. I have a thought, but you also have a thought. No. Don't forget your thought. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I love how you, you're talking about it being able, being a way of touching eternity. Um, maybe this isn't super relevant, but maybe it is. I don't know. A while ago, it was my birthday, and I went to visit my family, and uh, what we did for a birthday celebration was read aloud a dialogue of St. Augustine. So, uh, of course. <laughs> as, as one you does. do. <laughs> And uh, in this dialogue, he was, he was trying to sort out what happiness is and how people can attain happiness on earth. And the ultimate argument was that you can be happy if you get what you want and if that thing that you want is eternal, doesn't end. And um, I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, there's not really any way for any being in time to get that because eternity is literally no time there's no time in eternity. We have to live linearly, so there's no way we can live in that. However, I think that a lot of times for people who have this impulse that they long for eternity, they, I think that the impulse is to try to find things that last a long time, as if that is closer to eternity than things that don't last a long time. And I think that that's actually not true. I think that Things that are brief can also be moments of eternity. And, um, and I think that it's in that rhythm, as you're talking about, that rhythm of going back to that, is it, it, it's allowing us to kind of have multiple moments of eternity. So those instances can be instances of like the form of whatever, the eternal form yeah. of tea, the eternal form of beer. Um, so that was my thought. And yet at the same time, uh, it's not, it doesn't, the thing about drinking rituals or like, or smoking rituals is that it doesn't take the material substance and etherealize it and turn it into like a symbol of something. I love what you said at the beginning, JF, that this is like the best kind of materialism because Man. it's like, it's the uh, material that has exactly as Meredith describes this way of unlocking eternity while still at the same time being stubbornly some stuff. This mm -hmm. sip. <sighs> yeah, exactly. This, this event, but also this thing, this stuff. I like that. Now that yeah. Yeah, and there's something, when you think about it, drinking is a, nothing if not a repetitive act, an, an act of like, the dulling of senses through repetition. There's a, there's a, 
just not even in the sense of like, oh, you get drunk, so you, you know you don't know what you're doing or whatever. I'm just saying, like, even just like your third sip of beer is not going to be the same as your second sip of beer, your first sip of beer. There's a novel by Toni Morrison called Song of Solomon, and I've I read ages ago, and there's a character in that book who's described as being the third beer. <laughs> yeah, right. Like the not the first beer. Like she, uh, she's uh, she's somebody who's in a relationship with a guy who just kind of doesn't treat her that great and doesn't doesn't put put much thought into their relationship. And it's like from his point of view, she's the third beer, not the first beer where you're just like, oh, it's so, your throat is so dry and the. That, that the kiss of beer on your dusty palate is like this indescribable burst of juiciness. Not the first beer. Not the second beer, which is just sort of like, okay, now we can like settle in and, and, and like dig deep, dig, dig in. Not the second beer. Third beer, where it's just like, yeah, why not? You know, it's the third. One another beer? Sure. But is it, is it, yeah, maybe it, yeah, there was always that, 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 that evening where you go out for a couple of beers and you have one too many. Not, not in the sense that you get, it's just you're staying for like I don't a third know what you're or. talking about. No, no, but I'm not saying like you're getting drunk. I'm just saying that you're, 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 you're full. <laughs> you know, you're yes. not planning on staying out and you have that extra drink and you're just trying to get it down and get it over with. That's, that's a betrayal of the substance. Um, but when you're drinking properly, and that could include many, many drinks. Um, every drink, it's a, it's a question of intensity again, not just the intensity of each drink, but the intensity of the drinking uh, bout, of the drinking session. Uh, it's the same with, of course, with weed or with, uh, with tea. You know, tea, tea drinkers know this. You don't just drink one cup of tea. It's about infusions. And every infusion has its own qualities and its own virtues. And to me, the third beer is actually, I thought this was going to be, uh, my, the third beer has always been my favorite beer. Because that's the beer that if I have a third beer, it's because I'm going to have a fourth beer. And if I know I'm going to have a fourth beer, then I know I'm going to have a memorable evening. Like something might happen tonight. So the third beer is the beer of, it's the vestibule of mysteries, you know? It's like... It's, it's like when the canoe is just teetering on the edge of the waterfall. Exactly, exactly. And there's that moment where you decide, okay, it's going to be a night like that, which I haven't done that in a very long time. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to read about, because there's a nice passage in, um, in uh, Okakura's book there, uh, Book of Tea, about this. Oh, this isn't, oh, I don't want to change the subject. Um, Go ahead. The first guy, there we go. This is from, uh, it was such a beverage that Lotong, a Tang poet, wrote. It was of such a beverage that Lotong, a Tang poet, wrote. So this is uh, a quote now. The first cup moistens my lips and throat. The second cup breaks my loneliness. The third cup searches my barren entrail. But to find therein some 5,000 volumes of odd ideographs. <laughs> the fourth cup raises a slight perspiration. All the wrong of life passes away through my pores. That's the third beer for me. At the fifth cup, I am purified. The sixth cup calls me to the realms of the immortals. The seventh cup, ah, but I could take no more. I only feel the breath of cool wind that rises in my sleeves. Where is Horasan? 
Let me ride on this sweet breeze and waft away thither. The intensity of the repetition, you know, and the secret of the addict and the secret of the ritualist is the same. It's the secret that there is no such thing as repetition, but you can only know that in the midst of repetition. Only the repetition will show you that nothing ever repeats, you know. Any, any musician knows this, you know. It's the same note, but it's never the same note. Yeah, yeah, I like that. This also reminds me of a quote that I heard attributed to Oscar Wilde. It goes something like, uh, the fir- in the first cup of absinthe, I see the world as I want to see it. In the second cup, I see it as it is not. And in the third cup, I see it as it is, and it's truly terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's absinthe. Yeah. That's absinthe. <laughs> you don't want yeah. three cups of absinthe. No. no. You know, I was thinking about that, though. I, I really wanted to talk about absinthe because it's kind of a ritualistic kind of drink, too. I mean, and it has all of these accoutrements involved, and uh, you, you, put, you have this, like, water tank and this little spoon that you put a little sugar cube on, and this beautiful glass that's shaped a certain way, and then you drip the water in so that it slowly dissolves the sugar into it. And so it both makes it taste better and makes it cloudy and kind of opalescent. And, um, and I think it's, it might be for that, for that reason, and maybe for many others, that it's very interesting to me that in this book, the book of tea, um, the author kind of draws a comparison between tea culture and decadence culture. So mm-hmm. like this culture of people who are kind of celebrating the ephemeral, celebrating the fact that things end and just being okay with that. And I think that's partly where it comes in and then partly this this just celebration of material culture and how aesthetic and how beautiful it can be, and that's fine. Um, so I just found that really interesting. Mm-hmm. I was going to go in a somewhat different direction. Go. Um, just thinking about this idea of the, the, the birth of, how to put this, like the birth of singularity from the ironbound repetition of a process. Take another sip, take another sip, take another sip. This conversation is, I think, leading us in a direction to understand sort of like, What's up with ritual? Like, what's the point of ritual? Like, so where we started, I was like, okay, so is there a relationship between, you know, drinking rituals and smoking rituals, substance rituals, uh, and the kind of high and holy rituals of the, the great religions? It would seem perhaps to be profane to suggest such a connection, although um, Okakura uh, makes exactly such a connection right from the beginning of his book where he says, that uh, teaism, as he calls it, is a cult. And uh, yeah. he's saying that in the most cult-positive sense. Uh, a good kind of cult. But, the, um, but one way that you can think about you know, profane drinking rituals um, and smoking rituals and whatever, like just everyday ritualized consumption of our favorite things and religious ritual is precisely, I think, this notion that we've been developing of, I don't want to say repetition redeemed because that makes it sound rather Wagnerian, but 
Okay, so let me, let me talk about Suzuki violin, which of course, as you, I'm sure you're all waiting for me to get there, right? <laughs> uh, the obvious next stage of the conversation. Um, anybody here take like Suzuki violin when they were a kid? A few people, woo! Okay, and I'm not a... So something, there's a book by Robert Fink, who's a musicologist that teaches at UCLA. It's uh, a very good book called Repeating Ourselves. And it's about, it's sort of about minimalist music. Most of it is about, you know, music by people like Philip Glass and John Adams and Steve Reich and so on. But it's really more about what he calls cultures of repetition. And his argument is a historicist one. So he says, like, sort of starting around 1965, you see the transformation of broadcast culture in the United States from underwriter supported to uh, an ad model, right? So it's not like the Shell Oil Hour or whatever. Now you have just like little ads for Shell Oil being interspersed in a broadcast. And he points out that this creates a vast mechanism for repetition. And so, you know, if you watch a lot of TV back in the old days, or for that matter now, you'll see the same commercials repeating again and again and again, because in order for them, you know, they're like Mad Madison Avenue, uh, uh, you know, advertising gurus who figured out how much repetition you needed for an ad to be effective, and it was like enormous. And so Bob has this whole argument about how like this really kind of seeds the, the kind of material basis for what he calls a culture of repetition, within which you have different kinds of repetitive music that, you know, if you were to go to a record store, you'd be like, well, Philip Glass and Steve Reich, that's over in the classical section, and then, you know, James Brown, that's in funk, and then you know, like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, that's over in hip-hop, rap, and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, those are totally different kinds of music. And Bob's pointing out, he's like, yeah, but if you, you imagine like a, a Martian coming down and, and, and trying to understand our musical culture, they would assume that they, these were all just variants of the same kind of music because they're all repetitive musics. They all are, and this is Bob's argument, they all take place within a culture of repetition. The problem with repetition is like, we think because of that, we think of repetition always as something mechanical. That there's always this sort of sense of just like the blind mechanical agency of the machine. Like, you know, somebody has arranged for this commercial to be repeated so many times within a 24-hour block. It happens not as a result of anybody's choice. Not you, When you see a repetition, you don't feel like there's a conscious will behind it. It is just something that happens. Uh, and so we get the idea of like, you know, you see another iteration of the same Shell Oil commercial, it's like another one, another one, another one. And there's a certain idea behind that, an idea that moments are, I'm going to quote JF back to him, uh, that a moment is stock. You know, that, like you can imagine like a can sitting on a shelf and I can pull down this can or another can, the can of content, I'm looking at Karina Ulrich, who devised our marvelous content can design for our t-shirt. Um, and they're all like more or less interchangeable. The way Bob's book ends, though, is talking about Suzuki string instruction, which if you've ever done that as a kid, there's a whole lot of like, okay, play a whole bunch of long bows in a row. Like, okay, do a hundred long bows in, in, in a row. And one of the things that Bob points out is that Suzuki really kind of got transformed as it 
you know, it's a pedagogical philosophy or a pedagogical system that developed in Japan and something was lost in translation when it went west because the way we keep treating repetitions is just like another one, another one, another one. Stock rep repetitions, right? Photocopies of the same moment. But it turns out that, the, that, the, that Suzuki, the, the, the pedagogue who devised this method, was actually thinking very much more like a, a master of the Japanese tea ceremony or a, or, or, a, or a Zen master, as somebody for whom every repetition, a ritualized repetition, is an absolutely new event. And so Suzuki apparently spent years just playing longbows, one after the other, and each, and the, the art of it, the discipline of it, is treating each identical sounding moment, like to anybody listening to you practice, you're just like, I'm just hearing an open C string again and again and again, or an open G string or whatever. I'm hearing the same sound again and again. I'm hearing repetition, but the, I, the spirit of it is like, yeah, but the, mu the musicianship, like you're, you're training yourself as a musician by treating each instance as an absolutely new thing. Sorry, I've been going on about this for a while. Uh, I'm trying to think of some kind of grandiose point I can make about this. Well, no, that's a good point. <laughs> it has it's something we, to do with the violin. That's my but point, what, I guess. The question is, the question is, because there is such a thing as dull, mechanical, droning repetition. Repetition without meaning. Um, maybe there isn't anything like that ultimately, but there certainly seems to be something like that at work, for example, in modern techno-capitalist civilization. Um, you know, the, I was thinking, I'm, I'm, I don't know what the answer is, because there is a difference. There's the repetition that, occur, that, that shows us the singular by virtue of its being repetitive, right? Uh, the repetition that, of the tea ceremony happens in this precise ritualized way in order that this particular, I don't know, occasion, this particular uh, infusion of tea may sh reveal its full singularity to us, okay? But then you have the kind of mechanical um, repetition of, of like, a, uh, of a, you know, like the conveyor belt or whatever, the, the, the factory. And no doubt the singular if the singularity if the if if reality inheres in the singular then that's just as present in those contexts as it is in the tea ceremony but you need to you know there's a great moment in uh dancer in the dark with bjork the lars von Trier film where bjork is working in the factory and she's starting to kind of dream right and then all of a sudden the sounds of the machines start to to the, the very repetition of the machine starts to sound musical to her, and then this kind of dance number emerges from it. It's an old trope in musicals, right? The environment, just the, 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 the repetitions of the urban environment can sometimes coalesce into this wonderful symphonic singularity. But what is the difference? Like, what's the difference between a dead repetition and a, and a, and a live repetition? A real repetition that's not a repetition. <laughs> Well, this makes me think of another part of the Book of Tea, which is where the author talks about how the Japanese refinements are not trying to create some kind of monument of the past that is forever going to be there exactly the same. 
and it will never, you know, you have to like just be stuck there forever, nor is it trying to find something that is going to last forever. So you're not trying to find the music of the future or anything like that, but just embracing what is in the present. And yeah, you have that repetition of the ceremony, you have the guidelines for how to build a tea house, and yet you build it out of materials that are not gonna last very long, so wood and bamboo and straw and things like that. Because you know you're gonna tear it down eventually and build a new one that's going to be right for that moment. So you have this idea that repeats, but it's, it's still trying to be right for the present moment. So it's, it's I think mm-hmm. I got off of what your question was. The no, no, I, that's, that makes yeah. sense. The difference between mechanical dead repetition and repetition that's meaningful. Um, yeah. I think there's something, you're saying something about something monolithic and something um, geared towards the, it's like what you were saying earlier about people who seek the eternal in long lasting pleasures as opposed and thinking that, well, if this pleasure lasts a long time, then it's closer to being eternal than if it's an ephemeral quick, you know, pleasure, but that's not really true at all. Right. In fact, in a sense, maybe the long lasting pleasure, um, I don't know what that would be like, uh, I'm trying to think like a trip to Bermuda. Okay. Yeah. You know, I could go out drinking tonight and, and, or I could, I could just save up some money and go for, you know, go to Bermuda for a week to a resort and like a full, no, no, let's go for the 14 day package, the 14 days of Bermuda. Every day will be the beach. Every day will be the same. It'll be wonderful. It'll be eternity for two weeks. But in fact, those experiences often turn out to be quite forgettable ultimately you know i've done a few of those not many like a couple of times in my 20s when i was people were getting married down there or something i had to go and i I mean i always enjoy being out down south but um there's something about the repetition thing some people really seem to dig that Uh, to me it just seemed like we were um like just waiting for something to happen um so in a sense it I think what you're saying is that the culture surrounding it will have a lot to say. If you live in a culture that um, recognizes the transitoriness of, of reality, the ephemeral nature of life, the um, and then therefore as a, that's a culture that will be awakened to the singularity. And certainly Japanese culture, as, as at least as I know it, through you know what I've been exposed to in terms of Zen and tea culture and that sort of thing, seems to be a culture that has uh, put a premium on that side of things, whereas Western culture has tended to be, um, it seems like in the West, what we, like where, where do you see real repetition in the West? You see it in, in the military, right? Um, the military march is, a, and, and the idea of the military march is for every individual to become an instance of, of the soldier, such that you're watching the, the troops march and they're all the same. Um, there is no singularity, and it seems like repetition can be used to 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 drown out, to cancel out the singular, if it's done in a particular way. Maybe there's something similar to a kind of art artifice divide between these two forms of repetition and how they can be used. Um, I'm not sure. And, and Technical y- stuff. And yet the depersonalization, uh, like you were just describing, you know, uh, say parade, parade ground drill, you know, military uh, marching right. drill. Um, is the 
the you know annul annulling of human individuality. At the same time, in the sort of Zen ethos that Okakura is talking about it throughout the Book of Tea, there is also a kind of I mean, saying depersonalization is 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 perhaps misleading, but kind of it's not about the individual, and it's not about like. Um, but I was it, surprised. But, yeah, sorry. But it's but it's also not. I'm I'm just trying to put my thoughts together on this because it gets tricky, right? It uh, does. It does. But again, it's because because we're pivoting on that same these two opposite things that are so similar. Like I was surprised how many times in this book he refers to Zen and Taoism as as individualistic, as uh, the 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 sudden eruption of free expression in the Confucian world. Like basically, Taoism is about the individual. Strangely, right. uh, but and and he says that Zen is the inheritor of the Tao. Right? He says right. that Zen is the actual um, and. And, and certainly Zen has a very strong, I mean, from what I know, again, uh, a very strong, um, they, their, their scriptures and poems, everything is signed, right? The, 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 the particular, like, like if you think about Basho or you think about um, uh, our favorite uh, Dogen or uh, Haku and Ikaku, these guys are these great geniuses that are, um, in a sense, they're not deified, they're not transformed into bodhisattvas. They're, they really are like authors or thinkers or individuals in the history of, the, of, of Zen who nevertheless touched on something so profound that they may as well have become saints or something. I don't know. You'd have to, but it seems to me like there is a kind of individualism of sorts. Yeah. And calling it that is maybe wrong in Zen. It, but tell me if I'm wrong there. No, you can totally see it as a kind of individualism because it's sort of like, you know... One word that I, I, I have a beef with is mindfulness. Um, I don't have a beef with the thing, but, I, but with the word, because it because it's, makes it, to me, at any rate, mindfulness always makes it sound like a bloody job. Like, to pay attention. You know, keep yeah. your eyes open. Pay attention. Be mindful. Be mindful. Be really, like, just, the, I, I don't know. The image I always have of, like, mindfulness is the idea that I'm just going to be like, just trying really hard to like pay attention, every hear all the sounds and see everything. So, so full of mind. <laughs> it's like that scene in Scanners. Uh, <laughs> that guy was really, really mindful there. Louis, Too Louis mindful. Del Grande. Yeah. yeah. You know how they shot that, by the way. Yeah. They, had yeah, a, they, they made they, a, a, they... A, a a replica of Louis Del Grande's head full of. Big like Macs. deer le- deer liver. Oh, uh, I heard it was they went to McDonald's and got a bunch of Big Macs and ketchup packets. But you're probably right. I don't know. <laughs> and then and then blasted it with a shotgun. Yeah, yeah, I knew about that part. Well, That's for sure. He's, I showed that I they, showed that to Delphine a couple of weeks ago. She 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 found it hilarious. She. <laughs> <laughs> she loved the the obvious cut. Where you see that it's just, there's this, you know, because I think kids are really, really uh, sharp, visually speaking, retinally speaking right now. They can pick up, and she saw this wax figure in, right in the moment, right before it explodes. It obviously cuts to a fake 
for me, I was when I was a kid, I was like, I was worried they'd actually blown some guy's head off. To I know. To I was film. like, yeah. I was. I was like, I guess that's it for Louis Del Grande. <laughs> I hope you got a, a prize, an Oscar award like, for that. Because <laughs> I hope they put him in that. That you know, in the Oscars when they show the people who've passed away. I don't. I don't. I don't think he even made that thing with, that with the sad piano music and seeing his head explode. Yeah. No, that would. It's always slow mo too. It'd be just like. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to remember what I was saying. Uh, sorry, I totally interrupted you with that. Oh, mindfulness. I, I yeah, don't like the right. term mindfulness. So, like, but really, you know, to me, at any rate, you know, mindfulness is just sort of like asking yourself question: What's real? Well, what's real is like right now, what's happening right now. This is real, this shit, right now. Yeah, we just shared a moment. Yeah. That was I real, but, 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 that moment was is now, but that moment is now gone. There's something, I mean, time is, I mean, time is weird when you start really thinking about it. But like that eternally extended moment of now, right now, what is happening right now, Sounds like that's a trivially easy thing to keep track of, but most of our life we don't spend in reality at all. We're thinking about stuff that happened to us or stuff that might happen or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of... Um, and if you make a practice of like just always saying like, right now, this, right here, right now, if you just if if you live your life that way, which you know, if you're like a monk training under Dogen in 13th century Japan, that is basically your life, uh, an entire life practicing just attending to what is. Uh, then reality is not just so like some kind of abstract uh, thing that exists, like when my back is turned, like reality is radically seated in this individual, in this uh, skin bag, in this, in this organism, this, this individual. And then from that point of view, you can look at Zen and say, well, that is very individualistic because it takes the, uh, the um, what is Kerouac's great line? The, the unspeakable visions of the individual. It takes that as the abs as the as the the I don't know, it's like the whole point, right? Mm. But it isn't the same as Kerouac's unspeakable vis- visions of the individual, which is a point that Alan Watts made in his essay on Zen. Uh, Beat Zen, Square Zen, Zen, which is a great little essay, talking about what he saw as the kind of misappropriation of Zen by the these sort of proto-countercultural bohemian writer types, the Beats. Um, oh, he came around later, um, but at least when he wrote that essay, he was against it, and he thought John Cage was bullshit, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, Watts is like, well, these guys think that Zen is just like individual caprice. They're making it very Western. Exactly being able to say what the line is, though, between the unspeakable visions of the individual a la Kerouac and the unspeakable visions of the individual a la Dogen is actually, though, a somewhat elusive concept. I guess... Yeah, and I doubt that... 
I doubt Alan Watts will be the arbiter of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, part of, but part of it, I suppose, depends on whether you think that there is a self to be served. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like if, you, if, if you're like, yeah, the, you know, the reality is this right here, right now, as experienced from this particular individual, that doesn't mean that <laughs> this individual is a solid, unitary, durable self, like what we think of as a self. And so it's sort of individualistic, but then from another point of view, not at all. But uh, this is one of those, I, I, it's like, there's a friend of mine here who is a Zen teacher, and I sort of feel like, being like, Frank, come, come over here. here. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm getting intimidated because there's all this dharmic knowledge right. over here. <laughs> stressing me out. I didn't know out. Frank was in the room. Yeah, well, but the singularity and self isn't the, aren't the same thing, right? Like, uh, the self is certainly a repetition, if nothing else. You know, speaking, um, there's certainly a kind of beat to any particular skin bag's experience through this weird world. And... Um, and again, if we're going, are we going to look at the repetition? Let's, let's, see, let's say the self is a pulse, okay? Just a pulse in the void that, that is, oscillates at such a, at a, a velocity and intensity that allows this pulse to believe it has some kind of unitary existence. And of course, we know that he, the, the pulse is wrong. It's just a pulse. But... At the same time, if we reduce that pulse to just another instance of every other pulse, then we, have, we ourselves have fooled or have, have, have been tricking ourselves. It's the singularity of each pulse. It's the singularity of each series of pulses. It's the singularity of the repetition that believes itself to be a, to be a self. Maybe that's the true self. Maybe that's what, that, maybe that's, you know, the individual in the realm of the singular, you know, that has managed to, to, to break out of that world of mechanical repetitions and, and deadbeats. <laughs> okay. I, you look like you had something. I don't know. I, I, I feel like my mind is a little boggled right now, and I'm spinning in circles because oh, of read, that. You should read that. Okay, yeah. But just thinking about the singular, like, the real is right now, I kind of am I'm rethinking recording this conversation because, you know, it, I don't know, we're, we're thinking about ephemeral things, we're thinking about things that don't last a long time and yet are infinitely important to us. And I don't know, it's like performance art. You kind of have to be there. And now everyone else is going to hear this and then they'll think, ah, I wasn't there. I don't know, but... <laughs> Maybe they'll think, thank, thank God I wasn't there. <laughs> the important thing is, we were there and you were not. <laughs> yeah, Did you, do you have something else to say? Um, I always have other things to say, but okay. there was this passage that yeah, you yeah. wanted to read, and I want to have you, it's, it's a cool passage. Yeah, yeah, okay. So... There's this passage in this book that I just really love. It's at the end of the first chapter. The first chapter is called The Cup of Humanity. 
And a lot of it is uh, Okakura talking about how the West and the East kind of misunderstand each other and are kind of willfully ignorant of the other cultures um, in general. Uh, and then he kind of gets into this myth about um, this like kind of cosmic myth about the Earth being very chaotic and then this goddess Niuka trying to um, bring it all back together and almost doing it but fails, there's a little crack and that's where um, the chaos kind of starts rolling in again. But then he skips to today and how this is relevant and he says, the heaven of modern humanity is indeed shattered in the Cyclopean struggle for wealth and power. The world is groping in the shadow of egotism and vulgarity. Knowledge is bought through bad conscience, benevolence practiced for the sake of utility. The East and West, like two dragons tossed in the sea of ferment, in vain strive to regain the jewel of life. We need a Niuka again to repair the great devastation. We await the great avatar. Meanwhile, let us have a sip of tea. The afternoon glow is brightening the bamboos. The fountains are bubbling with delight. The sowing of the pines is heard in our kettle. Let us dream of evanescence and linger in the beautiful foolishness of things. Hmm. And so I really love that because he's talking about things that are still relevant today. Like this is written over 100 years ago and we can still look around and just, just see everything is just for the sake of utility. You know, everyone's warring. All these big, like horrible things are happening around us. And those are important. Yeah, they are. But I think that it's also important to have a sip of tea, you know? This is why we live life, not to stress out and about everything that we can't control. Although that's important, but I think it's also important to be able to enjoy things in life. And I just really think that's, that's beautiful. I also love, sorry, did you want to say something, Phil? What's that? Did you want to say something? Oh, just, oh, yeah. just, I, 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 just to um, amplify what Meredith just said, I just love, even just as a little piece of writing, just the, the rhetorical shape of this passage. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of piling up social issues of, of, of concern. And like any of us have gotten used to reading things where like, especially articles uh, that end with like, economists fear, health experts worry. X, Y, Z, like some horrible possible thing, some new coronavirus variant, I don't know, whatever, comma, experts fear. Um, and, I, and I was reading this passage and I was getting, and I'm so used to the way, the rhetorical shape of such things, the crescendo of anxiety, telling us all of the things that we need to worry about, things that aren't happening to us right now, right here, right now, but you know, just sort of like out there. And we're constantly told that this is reality, right? The, the, what I was saying a moment ago, what's reality is like this, right here, right now. Like we actually trick ourselves into thinking like, that's not real, what's real is this shit that I'm reading about and as I'm doom scrolling on Twitter or whatever. 
And I'm reading this, and he's doing that. He's piling up some things to worry about. East and west, like two dragons tossed in the sea of Furman in vain, strive to regain the jewel of life. We need a, you know, so like a, a figure of folklore to like, you know, repair the heavens. <sighs> Meanwhile, let us have a sip of tea. And it's just I mean, like, yeah. from the sh just the shape of the passage itself is whipping us up into this feeling of like, all the problems, experts fear, and then just sort of like, but come back to like this, what's in your glass? Yeah, like to, to put it in reality, thick end of the wedge terms, it's, he's, the meanwhile there is actually doing something really specific. When he says meanwhile, he's suddenly like knocking us out of a dream and bringing us into another form of time. So like he's building this, the, the, the world in which we, you know, yearn for the return of a Messiah, you know, that Kronos world of like the nightmare of history, how, who will save us from this, who will repair this. And, and then the meanwhile is actually almost like this vacuum sucking us back into out of the reverie and into the immediate moment, into that, what you were saying, into the reality of the now, where the world remains um, in a certain sense kind of virginal, like what it always was. It's just the, the, it's the new, it's now. There's something happening now that has never happened before. And in a sense, you know, the universe is always having its first sip of beer. You know, <laughs> It's always the first sip. It's always the new, and um, to remember that, you know, and it's actually really interesting to read how his litany of, of horrors is just as relevant today. Well, if it was relevant then, it wasn't the end of the world then, so perhaps we're not actually at the end of the world now. You know, maybe we can just enjoy a fucking beer or a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a line a little bit earlier in the same uh, see, in the same chapter. Hold on for a sec. Yeah, this is on page 22 of my edition at any rate. Um, he's talking about the first great apostle of tea, uh, Luo, uh, who was, as he says, born in the age when Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism were seeking mutual synthesis. The pantheistic symbolism of the time was urging one to mirror the universal in the particular. Uh, Luo, the poet, saw in the tea service the same harmony and order which reigned through all things. And this is, I mean, that's some, this, this is sort of how we're treating like libations. Maybe that's the word we should use, not just drinks, libations. That sounds more impressive somehow, right? Libations. Um, but yeah, there's, there's something certainly in Zen, certainly in Taoism, as I understand it at any rate, um, a willingness to see the universal in the particular. But also, you can kind of see how a phenomenon like the Japanese tea ceremony would emerge both from a love of tea, but also from a culture inflected by by particularly by Zen, um, and depending on who you talk to, Taoism. Um, I think that there's a lot of Taoism in Zen, but I know there's a lot of Zen Buddhists who would disagree. Um, Okakura would agree with me, though. 
but there's this sort of sense of like the, yeah, the, 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 well, it's getting back to something that Meredith was saying right at the beginning. Like eternity, we think of eternity as just like a really, really long time. But no, eternity is not captured through lots of time or a tiny bit of time. Eternity is something that exists orthog in an orthogonal or it's like an eccentric relationship to time as we experience it, as profane time. Um, and there is this way that, uh, there is this way that, uh, yeah, drinking, like the, the, the careful and ritualistic consumption of a libation is the recuperation of the universal, of that eternity in the particular, in this sip, in this pour, in this infusion. time, but I'd love to bring this back to our original idea, which was to talk about potions. Um, talking about libations made me, uh, reminded me of that that was our origi original intent. And what do potions do? Potions change you, right? That's the difference in a potion and a medicine, is that a potion changes you. It's somehow, um, the, 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 the to metabolize a potion is to become something you weren't before, either to fall in love with the first thing, you, the next person you see, or to transform into a donkey or whatever potions do. Um, and there's there's something about liquids. I think there's. I mean, we could we could do a whole show on communal eating, right? Sharing a meal together. But there is a difference between the eating and the drinking. And I'd like to look at that. And I think that maybe potions is one of our, you don't eat a potion, you know? You, you don't often hear about witches making like magic biscuits for people or like uh, scones. They usually make a potion, something you drink, mm -hmm. a concoction. Um, why is that? What is it? Is it the, the liquid is so primordial that the liquid is matter that's reminding us that all matter comes from something that's not matter? Like if things occur first, perhaps as gases, then as liquids. Like at the very beginning of Genesis, the spirit of God, um, what is it? it was the, the face of God was upon the waters. I can't remember. I can always forget that friggin' line. But there's the waters are there at the very beginning. Uh, water is chaos. Water is primordial reality. Um, the original stuff of which creation is made when you're baptized you're dunked in water um is that why witches make potions instead of <laughs> cookies <laughs> is there something about liquid can we say something about liquid and transformation and and creation is there something there i don't know yeah yeah yes yes yeah, absolutely oh good thanks yes as long as you have no follow-up questions Nope, that's all. No. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. And I actually have seen a lot of modern witches who make spells that are, like, to be eaten. So cookies oh, yeah. and, and things like that. But I don't know. I think I'm that, talking about fairy tales. I'm yeah. thinking more about fantasy, the, yeah, the yeah, archetypal yeah. potion. Yeah, Definitely. Sorry. 
I think that that makes sense. And uh, I can't exactly put my finger on it either, but I think that one, one thing is, I think it, you can also kind of draw a parallel to like the cups in the tarot. Uh, because even, even Okakura brings up this idea of the vessel as being really important. Um, he doesn't really necessarily talk about vessels, but he talks about the vacuum um, being where existence is. So you can't have space without space. And like a room, this room is the space. It's not just the walls and the ceiling. It's what's inside of the vessel. And I, yeah, there's something about a vessel being important for holding this thing that could otherwise just be dispersed throughout the world. So like this thing that's very free, but you're able to like contain it in something that has a specific purpose. Does that also make any sense? Yeah, something also just quickly uh, about the, the feminine in that, right? The, the cauldron of the witch is kind of like the belly, the womb of the mother the amniotic fluid, something about, uh, it's strange, like I was reading up on beer today, you know, uh, quickly and, and uh, haphazardly, um, this, like all the beer gods, almost, I mean, that's not true, I'm not going to say that, the beer gods that I read about today were all goddesses, you know, the Sumerians had a beer goddess, I know the beer, I've heard, I'm not sure where I heard this, but this, uh, women were often involved in brewing in the Middle Ages. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, there's something about motherhood, something about the waters from which we were drawn um, and to which we return, perhaps, in some sense. Yeah. There's also, I don't know, I, I used to homebrew like years ago. I used to brew beer. And there's a certain kind of excitement that comes when you're making a beer that's sort of similar to the excitement when you've got some pickles that are slowly fermenting off somewhere. Oh, I know in that excitement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when, you're, when you brew beer, I mean, you're, you're, you're boiling, you're making a mash, and you're, you're turning, you're, you're affecting transformations. You're taking a starch, and you're turning it into a sugar. It's alchemical, right? Yeah, and then, and then you introduce yeast to that, and it gives off carbon dioxide. And so here at Illuminated Brew Works yesterday, Brian was showing us around the, the um, fermenting tanks, and there's like a fresh batch that just went in a few days ago. And, you know, there's like a hose sticking out of the tank for the, um, the CO2, and it's like bubbling up. And it's just constant stream of CO2 coming out of this tank. And, like, if you've got on a much more modest homebrew sort of um, scale, like just a little five-gallon carboy in the corner of your kitchen bubbling away, like, you're affecting a transformation on this material, or the yeast is doing that, but you're, you're setting in motion this transformation. And, you know, I mean, there's, and in brewing, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. There are a lot of different way, things you can introduce at different points, like, oh, I'm going to, dry hop this beer and so you're going to put you know you're going to put in uh hops at a particular time to get a particular kind of flavor from the from the flowers etc but it's sort of like pickling you know and that like you don't just i mean with quick pickles like you make it and boom it's ready for dinner but like 
for most pickles, mm. like you have to kind of get it to go through a life cycle and affect this transformation and you end up with something quite different at the end than you did at the beginning. So a potion has that quality of transformation that just uh, at least more concentratedly or it's more in your face than like normal cooking. Well, the way you're describing it now, I'm just remembering how we started this, talking about ritual and occasioning the sudden event of the singular. In a sense, that's what that's what alchemy is, right? Um, it was about doing everything properly so that the thing can happen that's never happened before, right? Uh, the you 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 follow a strict kind. Of, I know that I don't know much about making beer, but I know that it's probably. It's got several stages, as you just described, and every stage needs to be done properly. It's the type of thing that, like, I was, I've, during the blackout, I was using my Coleman stove, and I like the old Coleman stoves that use, use uh, naphtha gas, because I like to pump, because that makes me remember when I was a kid, and pump, pumping the tank and doing, but those things are finicky, you know, and you need to do everything right, not just for right in terms of, like, following the instructions of the Coleman stove, but each Coleman stove has its own personality and its own uh, idiosyncrasies. So you have to learn to, to know your own NAFTA stove and figure out how to work it. I'm sure the beer, beer making is the same. Not only is there this kind of alchemical process, this recipe that one has to follow stage per stage, but there's also the particular equipment you're using, which you get to know and you get comfortable with, the materials that you use and the ingredients that you use. And, and then within that space, that rigid space, then you experiment within that. But the point is that you're, it's the yeast thing, right? It's the yeast is what does the magic, right? The yeast is what occasions the transformation. And you're just creating a space for that. And so, again, you have this kind of ritualized process that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, you're setting this up. It's kind of like making tea. You get the right materials, the right the water at the right temperature. You put the tea in, and the, the tea does its thing. The yeast does its thing. And its thing is what is... And, and of course, it's the same thing as with music. you got seven notes and, and, and a literally uncountable uh, amount uh, of music can come out of those seven notes. Well, it's the same with beer. It's like hops, barley, and water. And yet, um, who knows what what beers yet await us, what beers haven't been tasted yet, you know? Um, it, it's it, the, the, the rigid repetition of ritual in the name of the absolutely singular. Yeah, I like that. That reminds me of, of a thought that I had when I was uh, doing research for this. And uh, I was thinking about... Because I, I read some spell books about, you know, making potions and stuff. And a lot of times the instructions are to use kinds of herbs that you would use in just herbal tea. And so I was thinking, okay, what's the actual difference between just making tea and making a potion? And I think that it has to do with what you're talking about with ritual. Because it, it especially a ritual that's not necessary for the material element of the tea... So to make tea, you have to do certain things. Boil water, put the tea in, let it steep. And then it's done. You have tea. But if you're going to make a potion, you have to put in some kind of extra thing that's going to put, make that magical element that's going to turn it into some kind of magical thing that will spiritually work on you or whatever. Um, you have to stir it clockwise three times. You have to um, put your intention into it. You have to, I don't know, any number of things like that. And then 
that made me think of, so another thing we looked at kind of for this show was, was the witches from Macbeth and the potion that they made. And I was thinking about that when I was reading it, because they put all sorts of nasty stuff in there. They put some, like, eye of newt and, like, the hand of a deformed baby or, you know, all sorts of disgusting things that if you <laughs> drank that, Louis, no. Louis Del Grande's head. <laughs> pieces of Louis Del Grande's head. <laughs> Nobody knew, what they, nobody knew what Shakespeare meant by that. Yeah. yeah. History had yet to provide that ingredient. Yeah. But in order for them to make that into a potion, um, I th what they did that I think really like, took it to that next level was they put ritual into it. And that ritual involved a rhythm. And it involved... Yeah, it involves expressing themselves through rhythm because I noticed that they, when they're singing their, their song, uh, how does it go? Um, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron rubble. You know, this is iambic pentameter that's rhyming. And a lot of the rest of the play is not like that. And it's just the witches that talk that way. And so it's them... Trying making this singular disgusting thing, but they're also making it into something more through this element of rhythm, through this element repetition. of ritual and repetition. Yeah. Yeah. Fair is foul, foul is fair. There's this um, doubling. You know, uh, we could get into the witches in Macbeth. We should do a whole show on that. But on Macbeth, I think we should do a show on Macbeth. But um, yeah. But all those nasty things, aren't they all kind of, they were at least rumored to be used by witches at the time, a lot of those ingredients. Um, and where, yeah. Something that, something that you were just saying, Meredith, about it's like not just putting these ingredients in, but like stir clockwise three times or whatever, reminded me something that is often said about the distinction between alchemy and chemistry, which is in alchemy, there is the assumption that what is happening in the, the, the beaker, the, 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 I don't know, what's the, the alchemical retort? I don't, what do you, the alembic. Not an alchemist. Whatever those things are, you know, the what? The alem, alembic. The, yes, there you go. Uh, <laughs> one of those. What's, ha what's happening in the reactions <laughs> is mirrored in the soul of the operator. Or, or, or at, at maybe that's a, a poeticizing way of putting it, but we can say, like, there's no real boundary between the subjectivity of the alchemist and what's going on in, uh, in the work, in, in what they're putting together. And so, like, the negrito, for example, the, the blackening, the putrefaction, um, the idea that, like, every process has a negrito element, a, a point of decomposition, putrefaction, as a preparation to the next cycle of energetic operations and processes, right? The idea is like, okay, I'm watching this happen, so I got, I don't know, I collected some organic materials and subjected them to uh, certain chemicals, and now it's blackening and, get, and beginning to smell funny in the, in, the, in the retort. But the idea is like, but that's something that I can use to understand myself. That like, I can understand parallel processes in myself and so, like, th this is how you can end up with alchemy as something that is both a practice of self-knowledge, as Jung understood it, but also something a whole lot like chemistry, as, as, uh, as you know, scientists would understand it. And it's often said that in chemistry, we have the idea of, like, the, op the operator doesn't matter. Like, the, the, the 
particular experiment or procedure needs to be repeatable. It means, needs to be duplicable. So if I do it, then if you can do it as well, doing it exactly the same steps that I did, um, then we have an actual scientific result. We have something that's repeatable. But for that to have that kind of scientific validity, yeah, I kind of have to get myself out of the picture. But in alchemy, it's the opposite assumption, right? Well, when we're talking about potions and we're talking about like the, you know, what the, whatever it is the witches are doing in Macbeth or whatever it is that modern neo-pagans are doing in creating their potions, I think that there is some assumption like the ritual care and precision, like, okay, I have to stir it this particular way. I have to not only add this particular material, but also often those nasty materials are things that were extremely hard to find and you were like put to it to find, like, you know, the hand of a hanged man, the hand of glory, um, mm -hmm. It's a, a common element in folk magics in, in uh, Great Britain and probably elsewhere. Um, like if you show up with the hand of a hanged man, there's a story there, <laughs> right? Like you went through some shit to get that. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the, 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 the very nastiness and outré character of the ingredients of a potion ensures that there's a story, and that story involves you. And this is something yeah. true generally for like any, any number of like the, the manufacture of magical tools. So I like started off talking about weed head shit, talking about like, you know, I got my favorite grinder or whatever. But like also like carving your own wand, you know, or, mm -hmm. or make, you know, making a, a making um, a talisman or a, a yeah. talisman or a, a chalice or whatever. You know, they always say, like, you need to do as much as possible from scratch. And I think about how hard that is. If I want to make a wand and I want it shod in iron, like I just want to have a little iron shoe at the bottom of my wand, uh, as in the, in the customary fashion. Um, if I'm really going to go hardcore, I'm going to go and quarry some iron ore and smelt that shit. Like, I'm gonna, <laughs> I've got to have to, like, get the metal prior to like, you know, heating it, hammering it into some kind of shape, turning it into something useful, right? And the idea in part, I mean, you could understand like, okay, why do ceremonial magicians sometimes go to extraordinary uh, lengths to manufacture magical tools? You're putting more of yourself in that. Like, now you've got, like, yeah, I smelted this, <laughs> the iron that went into this wand. Now you've got a story, right? You're in the picture. It seems to me potions, um, as we are talking about them, a lot of the time, like, there's that extra degree of like, it's like an alchemist working on something. It's like, it's not separate from the alchemist. And like, like what we're talking about is potions. These are things that, yeah. yeah, that we are involved with. And this leads us back to thinking about more mundane potions, like make, you know, the first cup of coffee in the morning or a cup of tea or, or whatever is that, that ritualized elements like we it's the it's the kind of materialism that does not assume a subject object dualism me exactly. plus material it's like yeah. it's like we're abrogating that distance and the material becomes universal that particular material becomes universal precisely because you're a part of that if that makes any sense do you, do you see what i'm saying yeah i see what you're saying I think in a sense, in magic in general, what you want to do is you want to convince the universe that 
it would be a really shitty storyteller if it didn't deliver at this point. Because you've gone through all this trouble. You've put all this singularity, all this story into it. That at this point, I'm going to hand that potion to my, you know, the villager who came and, and asked me to make it for him. And it better freaking work at this point. Because, you know, I dug, up a, I dug up a corpse for this. So it's like... But, but there's something about, you know, magic works when, you know, in, in, my, in my humble and limited experience, magic works when... You get to a zone where the narrative just requires the result. You basically get to a place where it's like, I just know that that's the next thing that's going to happen. We all have those moments in life. I know what's going to happen next, and then it happens. You know, you, you, not, in the, not in the precognition sense. In a sense of like, you just feel the narrative thrust of a situation, and you just know where it's going. It's not like you're picturing, you get an image of where it's going to be. You just know in, in your body. And in a sense, it's like, you put energy into something and intention into something in the right way, because often when we put in energy and intention into something, we're actually working against it. Uh, we're putting the wrong type of energy. We're putting yearning, or we're we're um, we're putting a, like a kind of desperate uh, energy into it, and that doesn't work. Um, but when you put in the right type of intention, and I don't know how to do that perfectly. It's only you know, it's it's kind of the kind of thing that you just realize when it's happened but you don't know, really know how to do it, at least I don't, because I haven't trained as a magician really very, very much. And it, it has to do with the storiedness of life. It has to, something to do with the fact that uh, you're gonna, if you want to be a real materialist, like if you, be, if you don't want to be an idealist that says he's a materialist, like most materialists are, you're going to have to get with story, because that's what things are props. Check this out. There's a moment in the book where he's describing how to, uh, it's from that book, the, the um, Cha King, is that what it's called? The, the, the book of tea, like the classic of tea uh, in China. I didn't know about this book until I read about it in, in, in this book of tea, in this Cha King. But he's, um, he's talking about the author of that book's description of how to boil water. Aha, there it is. So this is amazing. So this is, this is, this is how um, recipe books worked before we had all the metrics that we have today, which, again, assume that kind of chemical distanciation of subject and object you were talking about, Phil, right? 100 milliliters of water, this, you know, everything is just metric. Everything is quanti quantitative. But he, check, this is how he tells you how to boil water. Um, so he, meaning the author of this book that, the, that Okakura is talking about, uh, the author dwells also on the much-discussed question of the choice of water and the degree of boiling it. According to him, the mountain spring is the best. The river water and the spring water come next in the order of excellence. There are three stages of boiling. The first boil is when the little bubbles, like the eye of fishes, swim on the surface. The second boil is when the bubbles are like crystal beads rolling in a fountain. The third boil is when the billows surge wildly in the kettle. It's a completely aesthetic way of describing a process, which, if it's going to be of any use to you, you're going to have to freaking pay attention to that water as it's starting to boil. You're going to have to get with matter. You're going to have to get with how matter behaves, not in our modern materialist way of abstracting matter in some idealistic fucking paradigm that doesn't even connect with the real stuff of life. You're going to have to pay attention to the water. 
And, you know, 100 degrees might be, look very different if you're using, you know, water from that mountain spring as opposed to water from this mountain spring. You're going to have to pay attention to the descriptions, the analogies that he, he needs in order to convey to you uh, the, the steps for making this thing, for, doing, for, for occasioning this particular repetition. And I find that that's what, in a sense, that's kind of what we lost, you know, in the transition just to use the terms as a kind of stand-in for a bunch of things from alchemy to chemistry. We've kind of lost that connection with the stuff of life, the stuff of, the, the, with the, the magic of matter, you know, what matters? <laughs> well, there's a, yeah, I love, I love that you brought up that passage about the, uh, the boil, because, you know, that's not very precise. You, know, you would say like, well, you know, the, the water will have some stages, the, there's the fish eye stage, and then there's the, whatever the second stage was, and then the, the billows stage. The the crystals and, rolling is the second stage. Yeah, and I, and I like what you said, like, that places, you know, preparation, that makes it an aesthetic and also, like, kind of narrative thing. It's just like, okay, what do I do? It's like, wait for the process to develop to a certain point of ripeness, and that is where you make your intervention. I love that kind of cooking. Like, the, I, I'm not much of a baker because I, and there are, are I, I, I know for a fact there's at least one fairly pro-level baker in here. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, so I, I may be speaking in ignorance, but my impression is always with baking, it's like you have to be very precise. You can't improv that much. Um, grilling and like barbecue, I love that. That to me is something that I feel I can do because it's a kind of cooking that's so much about feel. It's like, how do you know, like the other day I was grilling uh, something, I forget what, steaks maybe, and my daughter was like, well, how do you know when they're done? I'm like, well, you know, you've, you touch them, you feel them. I'm like, well, what do they feel like? They feel like steaks that are done? I don't, I don't know. You know, like, or sausages, like, I, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to a sausage when it comes off the grill. You hear it's like, is that, does that sound right? And, uh, I and, you know, my family teases me about that, but I'm like, oh, come here, listen to it, listen to the sausage. Um, <laughs> it's beautiful. And the thing is, it's like you're using all your senses, but you're using them in a way which is not, it's not as if there's something where you're like, okay, when it reaches like some quantifiable decibel level, the sausage is hissing in a very particular way that I can measure. It's like, no, it's a compound of all the different things your senses are telling you as you're working your way through this process. And it's almost like a musical thing, like, you know, finding like, where's the, the, the peak of the phrase? Where's the climax? Where's the, where's the point in the composition? Like if we're imagining playing a piece of classical music or in an improvisation, you know, like where do you really like hit the peak? Where do you really kind of get to where you were going? That feeling of being part of a process that is experienced as narrative, as something like a story, that's my favorite kind of cooking. And it seems to me that that is very strongly implicit in what Okakura is saying about the making of a good cup of tea. We did it. That's it. That's that it? it? Cut. Right. Well, that was different. Okay. <laughs>
From now on, Phil, I'd appreciate it if you could project my image above you every time we record. That'd be great. What's that light? Like, I feel like I'm your dream right now. You, you have to see what I'm seeing. <laughs> I feel um, like... Because Phil is on the left. Yeah, I'm seeing myself just right, just hovering behind Phil. Like, what I'm seeing right now is like a, one of those classic spirit f photographs, you know? <laughs> With like, I'm like your long-lost relative behind you. Somewhat fuzzy. I'm lo I look superimposed. I'm not really there. Somebody added me in. <laughs> yeah. It, even creepier that behind the sheet on the board is the picture of those twins from The Shining. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw them yesterday, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Speaking of repetition. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>